Welcome to another inspirational episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. Movie stars and actors, comedy actors and writers, they start with doing stand-up. That is where you find your message and that is your point of view and that is where you see if your material hits an audience and rocks the room. One day a librarian comes along and says, uh, why don't you try something different? Here's a book. It was a magic book. Changed my life. Monetizing Your Creativity asks the question, what does it take to earn a living with your creative talents? What I do between the books is to help out as many people as I possibly could so that when it was my turn to kind of come around that they'd be willing to support my book as well. So everything kind of comes back to relationships. I still, to this day, have never had a resume. I've never had a resume. I think you build connections with people, not in a cheesy, let's network, you know, together way. I think you continually add value. Those people who are interesting are interested. We focus on the success principles common to all disciplines by interviewing producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, music composers, animators, designers, and much, much more. Learn how to create your own path to success. Let's roll. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. I'm your host, Marvin Polis, and joining me is your co-host, Fred Keating. Thanks, Marv. This is another in our series of themed episodes where we talk to several people on the same topic. We had such great feedback on our previous episodes about the advice given by some of the presenters at the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, or CAPS, convention that we grab more segments from some of the champions of inspirational speaking and coaching for your education and enlightenment. So we're calling this episode Return to Caps Estrano. Really, Fred? What the heck are you talking about? Yeah, Marv. You know how every spring the swallows return to the Mission San Juan Capistrano in Southern California? Uh, no. Not an expert on swallows, but glad to learn that you are. Okay, then. Let me just say that in this episode, we're back and digging into the vault of interviews we had with those incredibly inspirational speakers that we met at the CAPS convention. Fred, we've often commented on the fact that although we have interviewed people from probably over a hundred different creative arts backgrounds, often the messages or suggestions for success that they share with our listeners are remarkably similar. You're right, Marv. And yet, each of the paths that our guests have taken to get to the levels of success they've attained are individual. Unique, really. We are all writing our own stories and building our own careers, but each story is different, even though the principles of success put into play may be similar. So the themes for this episode are getting started and... Everything you do is grist for the creative mill. Our guests will share their own applications and advice on how to get started. And we want to remind our listeners that all the experiences that you've had in life are still there waiting to be explored and exploited when the opportunity arises. Well, let's share with our listeners part of the conversation we had with comedian, writer, comedy coach Judy Carter and her famous story of the 59 refusals. I'm on it. Humor is a double-edged sword. Look at the language comics use. I killed them. I slayed them. They were rolling in the aisles. Comedy is do or die. Comic will bomb and go, I died. I died up there. The language is very extreme for a reason. Because if you do a joke about, let's say, somebody someone loves, you know, you do a joke about, let's say, the president of the U.S., but everybody in there voted for the president, they love that president, and you're doing a joke against that president, they're going to hate you. 
the point of comedy, isn't it, is to get up on stage and unify everybody in laughter. We've seen comics say things wrong, and their career within one minute on stage, they never work again. You know, what is your point to doing comedy? Are you there to really bring an audience together? And if to address stories versus jokes is a very good question. If you are working a comedy club, you cannot tell stories. Because we comics call that laying a lot of pipe. It's like, oh, so there I was, and then this happened, then this happened, this happened. And we're waiting and waiting and waiting for the laugh, which is at the end of your story. If you're working a comedy club, the setup is maybe three seconds, and then you have to hit it with a punchline, and then another punchline, and another punchline. So that means you, you should be getting at least two laughs every 10 seconds. Okay, now you've talked about stand-up comedy, and something that I'd really be interested in hearing your perspectives on would be writing comedy for film and television, because, I mean, you've coached some, some greats like Seth Rogen. Tell us about this. Seth Rogen took my workshop. Um, he was at a convention that I put on, and he was very young. And as many movie stars and actors, comedy actors and writers, they start with doing stand-up. That is where you find your message, and that is your point of view, and that is where you see if your material hits an audience and rocks the room. You get your direct feedback right then and there, you're funny or you're not. If you just write material, you end up sounding like, you know, the Unabomber manifesto, you know, single-spaced, and it's not organic. Now, if you are speaking, then you tell funny stories because the expectation of the audience is different. They're there to learn something and you need some content and then when you add laughs to it, then you make the big bucks. But if you are in a comedy club, you cannot tell stories. You have to get to the joke. Was there a moment during your career, whether it was way back as Magica or in any number of the stepping stones that you've had, where you really felt you were living your dream and, the, and that you were the right person in the right place at exactly the right time? I wrote a book. That book was rejected by 59 agents. 59 agents. So those of you listening to this, if you have a dream, if you have something you do and people turn you down, keep going. Because number 60 was somebody I just met on a plane and she liked my book and Random House liked my book. There's one other woman who liked my book. Maybe you heard of her, her name Oprah, Oprah Winfrey. So here's a book that's been rejected by 59 agents. And all of a sudden, there I am on Oprah. She's holding up my book and said, this is the woman that can show you how to be funny. And she's interviewing just me. And after that, None of my publicity I've bought. I've never hired a PR person. I've been on hundreds of television shows. I take what is passionate to me, what is in my heart, and what I'm really, really pissed off about. Because you cannot be funny without being angry about something. Because your anger, I say, don't get mad, get funny. Or get mad and get funny. And take your rage, whatever you have, and make it funny because that way people can hear you 
You know, people don't listen to anybody who's angry. You can't. But if they laugh, they get your point. And it's the best way to communicate your idea. And this is regardless of if you're going to be a speaker, a stand-up comic, or just trying to express your ideas. If you make people laugh, people will listen. If you make people laugh, they will listen. Well, Fred, would you still be laughing after 59 refusals to publish a book you wrote? I don't know, Marv. I think one of the hardest decisions an artist or creative type has to face is when to continue with a pet project in the face of consistently negative feedback or criticism of that project from colleagues in the industry, or when to let it go, as your pet project may just be a bit ahead of its time and begin to work on something else, of course. Our next guest had one of his first life decisions made for him by his father, who took his family from Vietnam to Australia. Vin Jang gave us some great advice about creating your own path within the context of his own rather dramatic story. He certainly shared some great advice about how to become the kind of person that you'd like to be. In his case, a, a much sought after magician. Let's listen. First of all, you're the direct reflection of the top five people you spend time with. It's famously said by Jim Rohn. And I think it's something that, it's the common thread that holds all the successful entrepreneurs that I know in my life together. It's what connects them all together. They understand that, you know, if we put it to another way, you get to become who you want to be in the future by deciding who you spend time with today. So it really looks at the influences of your internal circle of influence. And I think a lot of people don't understand how powerful that can be. Because I used to spend time with a lot of my friends who... Mate, I love them to death, but the thing is they were completely satisfied with where they are. They no longer wanted to move forward. And that's a very strong kind of gravitational force that even though I wasn't satisfied, I forced myself to be satisfied with what I have. But inside I knew I wanted more. And I don't know if people can relate. I'm not sure if you both can relate, but I, I knew that I wanted more and I knew there was more in me to give. So again, it's just a, a very pragmatic way to look at changing your life by changing your environment. Tell us the story then about how you got from that point where you were before to where you are now. How did you choose this as a career? Did you wake up one morning and say, I'm, I'm going to be a magician and an entrepreneur? That's maybe a little strange, Vin. <laughs> Magic has been something that I've loved since I was young. If I could share the story with you how I got into it. My, during Chinese New Year and Vietnamese New Year, there's three days where we gamble like crazy. So we're playing card games, everyone's gambling, having fun at home together. So at the end of Chinese New Year, there would always be 20, 30 packets of cards left over. So for birthday presents, guess what we got as children? Packets of cards, all different colors. So after school and high school, dad used to make us all go to the library because it was after school childcare that was free. And um, we'd always be playing with our cards and we'll be stacking card castles, we'll be playing Snap. One day a librarian comes along and says, uh, why don't you try something different? Here's a book, it was a magic book, changed my life. It was incredible how, and that, that moment right there, I became obsessed with the book and I didn't give the book back, I stole it from the library. And that was when it began. But on a deeper level, magic hooked me because it was, it was an escape from reality. I was a poor Vietnamese boy, refugee family, but every time I picked up a packet of cards, I didn't have to be the poor Vin. I could be an illusionist, I could be a card shark, I could be anything I wanted to be. So I think it gave me a mental escape. And that's why it became so addictive. And that's set me on a path of obsession almost my entire life. How did you actually turn this into a business? A lot of people don't know this, but when I went to write down what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, and that's when you're picking your university topics or career paths you want to take, the first thing I wrote down was teaching. Because of the cultural pressures in the Asian community, 
you know, doctor, lawyer, or an accountant, or engineer. That's why I wrote down commerce and law. So I, I actually, I remember crossing out teaching and putting commerce and law first, then pharmacy, then teaching. So I had enough points and I got into commerce and law and while everyone was congratulating me, I was hurting inside. So again, I connected magic to teaching because I want to teach magic. That's why I created the online magic school. And I think when you pair your passions, you create a, or you ignite an even greater fire. You've often followed your instincts, started down a particular path, gained a, a certain amount of skill there, but then when something else or some other application of those skills presents itself or you stumble over it, you've had a tendency to uh, attack the sails and, and follow that particular breeze. You know, you're, you're equipped to attack opportunity. I think that's the entrepreneurial spirit. And there's also the beauty of the unknown. I think when people plan their lives too much with too much certainty, you leave no room for surprises. Like magic, the only reason why it's beautiful is simply because people don't know how it's done. So to me, magic lives in the unknown, not only in magic, but also in philosophy and life. So to me, leaving some of the unknown and then letting the opportunities just appear and then seizing them, I love that. Like that's, to me, that's what dad taught me. To, to create something out of nothing is the most exciting thing as an entrepreneur. You know, in fact, many of our listeners, of course, are in that sort of creative realm where they're going to auditions and they're working to earn the part. What sort of words of, of encouragement or advice do you have for these creative folks? Look, I think the first thing is, and this caused me a lot of pain, just stop competing against everyone and look at yourself as your main competitor. What am I doing today that makes me better than who I am from last week? What am I doing tomorrow that makes me better than who I am today? and get so good that the marketplace cannot ignore you. So I think it's really a case of personal mastery. We often let the external factors in life, oh, this person didn't like me, they didn't book me, they didn't pick me. Instead of focusing on that, it just means you haven't gone through the training necessary to earn your part. I think we should lower our expectations and only ask for what we deserve, even when it comes to success. I always ask my friends the question and people I speak with, if you could go back in time 10 years ago, could you have given more? Could you have applied yourself more? And I think every human being on this earth might agree that, yes, I can, which proves a point. We all have more to give. There's more in all of us. And if we realize that potential, I believe you will get the part that you desire. Well, Fred, what do you think? Vin says, we all have more to give. Give more and you will get the part that you desire. I think he's right. I think if you are wondering about what your tomorrow or next week will be like, you should take a close look at what you're doing today because there is a link there. What happens in your future is a direct result or consequence of what you are doing today. I got that from a good friend of mine, Andy Clark. While on site at the CAPS convention, we also met and spoke to Corey Perlman, the president of eBootCamp and the best-selling author of Social Media Overload. I love his take on listening for those positive taps. In addition to his books, workshops, seminars, great life coach and role model, Corey Perlman, shared some advice with us. Now, Corey, I know that our listeners are often wondering, how do people get into the business that they get into? And, and how have they managed to monetize their creativity? So tell us your backstory. How did you how did you get into doing what you do? I was starting my career with General Motors. I was in the uh, technology field, and I had another little startup I was doing. And then I had this this course I was teaching on, on internet marketing to anybody who would listen. It was uh, something I had kind of developed uh, with a, a mentor of mine. And so I had like these three or four things going on, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners do. And I wanted really badly to do another thing. But the one that was giving me the most positive taps was the internet marketing presentation. What I mean by positive 
positive taps is every time I would do it, something good would happen. Something in the ether would happen. And so as I was trying to make this decision, another mentor of mine said, you know, Corey, I know you love this investor teams, this thing I was doing. He's like, but where are you getting the positive taps from? And I said, you know, it's, it's e-bootcamp. That's the one that people seem to be, you need to go with that one. Leave the rest alone. And so I would, you know, encourage your listeners to kind of feel where the things that are sort of dragging you towards success, follow those, listen to those. It's kind of like having your ear to the railroad tracks, you know, really pay attention to what is happening out there and what people are driving you to. And that's what you should focus on. So for me, it was this presentation that I was doing on technology to real estate agents, mortgage brokers, anybody who would listen. I ended up writing a book on the subject, uh, became a bestseller on Amazon, and that really launched my speaking career. You know, you wrote this Amazon bestseller book. How did you actually pull off the marketing of that? I know our listeners would be curious because they have their own projects and they may be documentary films, they may be books, they may be other creative endeavors where they've they've actually created a product that they need to sell. So tell us about marketing. The first book I wrote was published by a, a traditional publisher, so that was helpful. I had them as a, a partner. And what I kind of decided to do, I stumbled across it, but it's it's really to pull your tribe together, the people that love you, the people that you love, and really push the product, whatever you're doing, at the same time, get everybody to do it together. And that tidal wave really helped bring the momentum of my book, but in your case, it might be a documentary or a pro- whatever project that you're working on. So the second one I actually did on my own, I self-published that one, and that was equally as successful called Social Media Overload. And again, I really just focused on um, what I do between the books is to help out as many people as I possibly could so that when it was my turn to kind of come around that they'd be willing to support my book as well. So everything kind of comes back to relationships. And so the marketing part really came down to instead of me going for like the big fish who had like 3 million email addresses. I went with, you know, 300 of my friends who had 10,000 people or 3,000 people. And all together, we launched my book on the same, I called it my book birthday. And uh, and it really was because the 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 12 months before, it was kind of like a <laughs> my version of a pregnancy. It was a lot of work and a lot of pain. Um, but the book came out and then everybody helped launch it. And it was a pretty good success. I think our listeners, if not interested in, still need to hear about the soft skills, about the character traits. And you just tag that when you talked about the importance of relationships and the quality and quantity of relationships in direct proportion to one's success. I think that, you know, when I hire people, for example, um, your skill set is secondary to your attitude. I can teach any kind of skill set or have those taught, but somebody having initiative, somebody having a great attitude is paramount to me. So the other thing is, you know, in this day and age, you know, look, millennials in some ways, especially from the older generation, get a bad rap. And I think that's that's silly. But the one thing that is, is said is that because these devices are there, that they have a harder time with face-to-face communication and such. And I think everybody, to some degree, Degree, has difficulty with that. So it's important to invest in yourself to make sure that you can communicate both online and offline. So I've done a lot of that. I'll, I'll go ahead and throw a plug in for Dale Carnegie, which is um, something that really drastically changed my profession and trajectory in my career. It taught me how to speak, not only in public, but also just face-to-face with just individuals and being able to keep my thoughts somewhat concise, even though it may have not seemed like that in this podcast, but <laughs> to the extent that I can. And it was just really beneficial to my career. So A, definitely work on the interpersonal and relationship skills because it's critical. And B, just invest in your yourself throughout your career. It's really important. Wow. 
Those of our listeners unfamiliar with Dale Carnegie and his legacy, search him out on the internet. While the man himself is not with us anymore, his timeless principles, as published in his books and still taught in workshops worldwide, have helped many successful people create and sustain a wonderful career on the strength of character and strong positive relationships. Well, we've often said it's all about the relationships. Those you build, those you sustain, and those you discard, and those yet to come. Marvin, you are waxing wildly poetic these days. Do you remember when we met Ron Tite of the Tite Group and how he described how he got started? I do. Ron Tite is a bit of a renaissance man, writer, comedian, advertising, and marketing genius, and total supporter of the belief that what goes around comes around. As in, the various adventures you've had up to this day are all still stored in your memory bank and ready to pull out and put to use on the imminent opportunity. Here's how Ron put it. The interesting thing is that it didn't, there wasn't never a decision, right? There was never the point of I'm going to pursue, okay, speaking and content and advertising and write, like none of that. You know, I think we just have to, as professionals, from the time we start our career, from the time we start our education, we just, we can't let labels define us. And far too often we think like, oh, well, I got a Bachelor of Commerce degree, so I guess I have to go work at McKinsey or wherever. Uh, I got a phys ed degree. So right out of the gate, it was that, you know, I don't, I don't care about that. I don't, not that I don't care about the field, but I don't care about the label. And we just have to constantly pursue stuff that, that interests us. And it's amazing how when you pursue interesting and diverse activities, how they miraculously, when you hit 46, they all come back together and support one another. So, you know, I did a phys ed degree. My first job was in the Queens Business School, launching the National Executive MBA program, the first EMBA delivered through video conferencing. So I then got, you know, like right away, I got access to some brilliant thinkers who were professors in, in the business school. Did that. Started kind of as the internet was starting to be born you know, started getting involved in high tech and kind of the approach of that brands have on the internet. So started working in advertising on the internet side, started managing the Intel business. And all along, I had this interest and this curiosity about comedy that from the time I was in high school, like I did the first stand-up show in high school because I, I loved comedians and I wanted to understand the method to the madness. Like what was the, the organizing principles behind that chaos? I think, you know, great musicians take piano. All musicians take piano, whether you play the, the drums or the guitar. I think all comedians should take improv. And I think improv is the piano of comedy. And so I, I started training at Second City and then carved out into in being a stand-up. And then I just wanted those worlds to come together. So I, I moved into the creative department of the agency and so now I've got that creative process being delivered in two completely different ways, but incredibly complementary. But how did you pitch yourself into that advertising agency? I still, to this day, have never had a resume. I've never had a resume. I think you build connections with people, and not in a cheesy, let's network, you know, together way. I think you continually add value. Those people who are interesting are interested. You get interested in other people. You get interested in process. You get interested in business. And along the way, people want to give you opportunities because they think you're going to deliver on them. So I, I never went in saying, you know, apologizing for my background. It was always, how can my background allow me to deliver something that's unique that nobody else in the room is delivering? Indeed, many of our listeners are millennials, and they didn't really grow up 
with the rules of having gatekeepers stand in your way where you have to ask permission to do this and have to you know pitch to this and pitch to this. you know you just go out there and you do it right you you want to be a comedian say funny things and put your video up on YouTube and that sort of thing all of that is very disruptive so tell us more about your philosophies on disrupting the status quo as a creative person well i think to your first point in comedy we're seeing that comedians are doing it but they're not doing it in the traditional way. So the old way used to be, you went to Yuck Yucks, you did an open mic night for five minutes, and then you became an opener for six months making no money, then maybe you became a middler, and then you know four years later you became a headliner. When I started, I said, I'm not doing that. I don't want to do it because that was a horrible environment. And so I said, uh, what else can I do? And they said, well, you can find a publisher, or you can find a, a producer who's producing a live show and, and convince them to put you on for your first time. And I just said, why, why don't I just be the producer and make myself the headliner? <laughs> you know, like, that can't be rocket science. So my very first time on stage, I did a 45-minute set of original material as the producer and headliner of my own show. I think that is one way, is that you, just, you, you don't follow the rules that are in place and you make your own opportunities. What's interesting, though, with millennials is that in the comedy space, that they are going to YouTube, right? They're putting their own videos online. In fact, someone came to me and said, my daughter is a comedian. She's just starting out. What do you recommend she do? And I said, just get stage time. Just get more stage time. And she said, oh, no, she's never done it in front of people. She just does YouTube videos. And part of me was offended that that was now being called a quote-unquote comedian. And part of me was inspired that why isn't that a new type of comedian? I do think where millennials will fall down is that by putting so much emphasis on the digital channels, they're actually going to lose the biggest opportunity to learn what material works, what material doesn't work. This is a speaker, speakers as well as comedians. By being in the room, face to face with people, you see body reactions, you hear a little whimper of a laugh in the back that can tell you, you don't hear any of that in YouTube land. You get likes and, and, and dislikes and, and negative comments. So I think that is fundamentally changing how creative people get real-time feedback. So according to Ron Tite, being in the room helps you get real-time feedback. Well, it's worked for us on this podcast, Fred. There's something confirmational about being right with our guests in person that makes it a more effective conversation than if it's only done over Skype or the phone. Would you agree? I believe it's the secret to our success. I love being in the same room with our guests or even in their own nests, the workplace or studios. Just being in the room with such creative energy is in itself energizing. That's why there's nothing quite like standing in the place where art is crafted or seeing it properly displayed in a museum or on stage instead of just reading about it. Or hearing our guests share with us in person the backstory to their own creative endeavors and lifestyles. Well, speaking of real-time feedback, that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Please join us again next week for a new episode. And let us know if you like the themed episodes where we get a chance to have several guests speak their mind. This is Fred and Marv saying bye for now. Thanks for tuning in to Monetizing Your Creativity. Be sure to join us next time by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave a review. It helps us with our ratings. 
You can also visit monetizingyourcreativity.com for more information about the show. And hey, be sure to tell your friends who want to understand how to monetize their creativity.